0: On November 12, 2015, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar with Patrick Mendes, Distinguished Senior Fellow in the School of Public Policy and Affiliate Professor of Public and International Affairs at George Mason University and currently a Fellow at the Ash Center. His seminar was titled, The Trans-Pacific Partnership or the One Belt, One Road Strategy, The Future of Sino-American Trade Relations in the Asia-Pacific Region. The discussion was moderated by Arne Westad, St. Lee Professor of U.S. Asia Relations at Harvard University. For more information, please visit ash.harvard.edu.
1: It's great for us to um, have Patrick Mendes back at the uh, at the Ash Center. He is a, he's a senior fellow here, um, and uh, he is also someone. Uh, who has a very broad, very diverse, and very distinguished background in public affairs in this, is, in this country, among other things as a commissioner of the U.S. National Commission for, for UNESCO. But his main interest, I think, overall in this long and distinguished career has been the relationship between the United States and Asia, and that is what he is going to talk to us about today. Now, I'm on Westard. I'm the RST Lee professor of U.S.-Asian relations here, and I will be guiding the discussion of the, uh, Patrick's presentation. Now, his interest in the economic relations between the United States and East Asia, but also within East Asia, come very much out of his involvement in China with many experts uh, at different Chinese academic institutions, among them uh, the uh, School of International Studies at, Beida at Peking University and uh, also the Department of International Politics at Zhejiang at Jieda, uh, University in, in, in Hangzhou. So he is uh, very much at the center of many of the discussions that are going on, not just in this country, but also in China and in East Asia about the future of Sino-American trade relations within the region. It's great to have you back here, Patrick. We're very much looking forward to your presentation today.
2: Well, thank you, Ani. And uh, before I start, I just look present your copy of uh, my book uh, to you. Uh, It's A Peaceful War, and you can look at it. Thank you very much. So after I've read the book, we have to invite you back so we can have another discussion. Uh, All right. (laughs) 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 Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, uh, Professor Westad, and uh, thank you for coming. I would like to go directly to the PowerPoint presentation and uh, just to give the context and the framework to think about uh, how the presidency's uh, uh, Silk Road and maritime belt uh, uh, works and how he envisioned that initiative. And also to look at uh, President Barack Obama's Asia Pivot strategy through which that he tried to accomplish the America's goal and uh, uh, through now especially through the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I am going to focus on to try to look forward by looking backward. Uh, if you read uh, Professor Westad's book, uh, uh, Restless Empire, and he also mentioned about the China looks the future uh, by looking at the past. Uh, and I want to look at it the similar kind of uh, uh, lenses. Uh, it's just like uh, uh, the very famous saying says, uh, uh, past is the prologue. Uh, so I'm looking at uh, China's and American-Sino relations uh, how we are, what I think uh, uh, is going to uh, play out uh, in the future. And there are a lot of variables at work, so I'm going to kind of put the framework as in a, this is an academic committee and I'm speaking as an academic rather than a government official, so any sort. Uh, so I try to get the balanced view of this one so we can have a conversation afterward. And thank you very much again, Ani, and thank you for coming. Um, you can hear me, am I right? All right, great. Um, you probably heard about uh, our policy makers try to understand China through our own history. Same way China wants to see China's future through their own history. So we try to understand our the China through our frame of reference. So early this year, General James Clapper, who is the U.S. Director of Intelligence, he went to the House Intelligence Committee. As we were monitoring the South China Sea dynamics, he said uh, China has been quite aggressive about asserting what they believe is their manifest destiny. Here we go, that America's vision for the world is resonate with the manifest destiny which I'm going to talk about in later. And then he went into the, uh, a year later, this year, early this year, he went to the Senate Armed Services Committee and he said, Beijing is very aggressive and exerting its national sovereignty, especially referring to the South China Sea and the East China Sea, Diao Island region. And uh, this region is here, all the way from South China Sea to the East China Sea, Spratly is Island, to also to Diawo Island, um, or Senkaku Island, to those who prefer to call from Japanese perspective, uh, they wanted to, to consider this is our region, North and South China Sea. After all, it is a China Sea, East and the South. It's a China Sea. It's not anybody else. So therefore, with that mindset, America tried to understand the Chinese behavior through the manifest destiny. And then uh, Uh, At the early this year, Senator John McCain, who is the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, in fact, show there are satellite pictures of Chinese built-in insulation. They believe the military insulation in South China Sea, especially in the Subi Island Reef in the Spratly Island, and uh, showing in fact these are. Military installation, they have uh, AI stripes and uh, harbors that big military ships can ca- come in and ha- uh, land ride there. So therefore, US gradually now exercising this freedom of navigation uh, through the South China Sea. So in that perspective, this is China is essentially exercising its rights uh, in that region. Uh, we are looking at this is the manifest destiny uh, kind of frame of reference. So in response to that one, this is February this year, and the following month uh, didn't take that long. Uh, Rear Admiral of the PLA Navy uh, said, uh, no, we are essentially uh, is uh, uh, doing our economic peaceful development in the region. And our strategy is twofold. One is a Silk Road uh, economic belt that going on a northern route, and the second one is going to the maritime silk road than going from the southern uh, route uh, which is going through the my country of birth Sri Lanka Uh, so therefore I was kind of really uh, close uh, uh, personal interest to uh, this because I was influenced by the Chinese uh, uh, influence I had when I was growing up in Sri Lanka, when I was a teenager before I came to Minnesota as an exchange student ever since I've been a US citizen. So I look at it, this one in the American perspective as well as the Chinese perspective and also the Sri Lankan perspective. It's a different perspective coming in, so that might be very interesting to have a conversation afterward. So essentially, uh, the Admiral uh, Jing Sho was saying The presidency's Belt and Road Initiative is not an American-like Marshall Plan. So he is also using American term to communicate with the American, hey, this is a manifest destiny? No, this is not American Marshall Plan. This is uh, not given a rebuild in the war torn Germany or Japan after the World War II. No, this is a peaceful, proactive rebuilding of our own way. We didn't destroy, in order to rebuild. This is not the Marshall Plan. So they are also using the American concept, not to talk to the American audience, but also to talk into the uh, to, not to talk into the Chinese audience, but talking to American audience because Americans are talking about manifest destiny. Then he said, yes, we know about it. This is not the Marshall Plan, by the way. So he is kind of in indirect way of sending the messages back and forth. So this argument about the Silk Road strategy, what is that meant to the Chinese new leadership? It is according to the President Xi, and when he went to the his first event in the National Museum in Beijing, and he said this is the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, bringing back the Chinese culture. does this, is, this is coming from? So it is linked to that uh, ancient mindset of the this is the center of the world, this is the middle kingdom, and we are connecting that middle kingdom to our Silk Road that's going through from ancient capital of Xi'an, where I first went to teach many, many years ago, and I was there last month also, So, which is remarkably different. I couldn't even recognize except the wall. Uh, uh, Even that was modernized. And uh, what you're seeing this is the rejuvenation of the Silk Road. It is the, from the beginning of the Chinese nation, from the Qin Dynasty, from the Day Emperor onward. It developed overall. It's the evolution. And it went to the highest time in the Tang Dynasty. And the Tang Dynasty is the dynasty that the Chinese people are very proud of. And this is now Chinese leadership picking up that part uh, to rejuvenation, the, the bringing back the culture, bringing back to the future. So, this is the one way to do uh, the way I look at it about the, this part of the Silk Road. So, this is the connection. What is that uh, until the last emper- uh, dynasty collapse in 1911, when the Dr. Sun Yat-Sun came in as the People's uh, Republic of China uh, leader, you have a coin used. This coin is the square. And a circle. What does that mean? Is representing the heaven and earth. So they use the heaven and earth concept as the medium of commerce. So they use that commerce and the connecting to the Silk Road. And the, during the Tang Dynasty, it's kind of cosmopolitan China was the highest pinnacle of the Chinese prosperity and the globalization and people are happy and prosperous and peaceful, stable society at that time. So they wanted to bring this kind of future for China. So this is the one way I look at it, the, this northern part of the Silk Road and the connecting heaven and earth through the true commerce and trade and the exchange of ideas from Buddhism coming from India, for example, and also Sri Lanka, when Faxian uh, uh, and also Sen went to Sri Lanka and brought the Buddhism back to China and so forth. So there are many linkages in the historical terms. So when you look at it, the second part that China wants to bring in back is the maritime Silk Road, which is going through the South China Sea and to the what they call the Western Ocean, which is the modern day Indian Ocean. For the Chinese, they have a North Sea, West Sea, South, South Sea, and the East Sea. So this is the Western Sea, is the Indian Ocean. And it was first claimed and Successfully claimed by the Chinese during the Ming Dynasty when Admiral Chong He went seven times to Indian Ocean and he went to Sri Lanka three times and captured the Sri Lankan king and took to the Nan- uh, uh, Nanjing and released a year later. You probably know that story. And this is the exception. Okay, otherwise, uh, so that's I have personally. What most were peaceful. Uh, <laughs> it's peaceful. It's peaceful. Actually, he was released. Uh, the Ming Emperor said, "No, he is the ignorance. Uh, let him go." Uh, Though he was sent back, but by that time when he was sent, uh, Sri Lanka has a different, another king. And also Sri Lanka has, my hometown uh, king in the 11th century actually hired uh, Chinese soldiers to protect uh, Sri Lankan ships going to Nanjing. Uh, so there's a lot of connections. Uh, still, you can go to the Trincomalee, that natural harbor. There is a place called the China Bay. It's still the China Bay. Uh, so it is because of the uh, American-Sri uh, Lankan trade with the Chinese at the time. So point is, this is in the Ming Dynasty. So now the President Xi and his leadership is using this uh, maritime Silk Road, is the, the connections to the West not only to the Middle East but all the way to the uh, Athens and to the Europe and to uh, all the way to the connecting northern south and the southern route to the a Circle. So this is the strategy that the presidency is using. So remember these are the two dynasties that Chinese people are very proud of. Tang dynasty which I talked about earlier, the second dynasty is the Ming dynasty. So you are not really Talking about any time or in the future or now, uh, Yuan Dynasty or, or the Qing Dynasty. You know, what I mean, they are uh, not really Chinese, but they're Mongolian or Manchurian. So th- th- they wanted to talk about these two two dynasties are the two di- uh, part uh, period that wanted to China to. to uh, bring back to the future because in, uh, during that time the maritime technology during the Ming dynasty was uh, remarkable because uh, this was uh, almost hundred years before Columbus came into America, discovered America uh, with the three small ships and if you look at it, uh, this is uh, hundreds hundred of ships sailed through the Indian Ocean at that time. It is a remarkable technological advancement that China demonstrated to the world at that time when the Europe is so behind. So these are the two dynasties that the two strategies that presidency is going to bring it back to. So later on that uh, first uh uh, journey to the West, uh, which uh, was popularized in the Ming Dynasty, is also very popular. Then it is coming back again in uh, movies and videos and other things, very popularized. And now if you go to Nanjing and you have uh, Admiral Chong his new park and a new ship is rebuilt, that ship, and they have now bringing back the culture again, uh, and both in a strategic way and also demonstrate the Chinese uh, grandeur of the two cultures so therefore now this is china is essentially not uh, trying to build a, this is a commercial civilization uh, which is in the northern route and the south uh, southern route one is through the high speed railroad and also the uh, the uh, f- uh, airline flying from for example like a chengdu from the onward to the west uh, to the european countries and also the blue navy development of blue navy to the southern uh, uh, the route and go through into the uh, 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 indian ocean and all the way to the middle east and to the china I mean, to the europe so therefore now we can ask the, is this a part of the manifest destiny or monroe doctrine or both how can we understand these two thinking in american concepts so what is Monroe Doctrine and what is uh, Manifest Destiny. Past Easter Prologue is still we believe America has the certain destinies, manifest destiny in uh, promoting freedom, democracy and so forth that we want to do around the world. For the first time, the manifest destiny going westward. And so therefore I am looking at the past in order to try to figure it out to understand the future just like Janos has uh, two faces, one is looking backward and another one looking forward. And essentially the, remember these are both countries are essentially geographically speaking the same land mass, uh, and a different population of course, but uh, they are essentially in terms of the, uh, there are certain limitation in geographically but their landmass wise is pretty much the same. So one is going westward and another one is the Monroe doctrine, when the Monroe doctrine essentially said, the, the European powers don't come to our part of the hemisphere, northern hemisphere or the south, uh, and this is uh, our world. No colonial powers in our region, which was at that time was very popular when uh, uh, James Monroe declared that uh, uh, doctrine in 1832, uh, actually 22. Uh, so therefore then we said in the Caribbean, it's ours Then the US involvement with always there to invasion and other forms by force. And this continued, and we still think even uh, until the Reagan years. You know, look in the Panama and uh, after years, and Grenada and uh, other incidents we have, or even the uh, our connections with the other islands in the region, is we consider that they are ours in the region. But at the same time, there are inroads from the Chinese to the, this island as well. So when you look at the manifest destiny and uh, idea of empire of liberty going westward, it is. With Thomas Jefferson, who sent that uh, Louis and Clark to the westward, to the, uh, and then uh, we bought the Luciana Purchase and going westward all the way to the Pacific, and not only that one, get into the Hawaii and all the way to the, the Philippines. It is America's destiny, going westward, just like the Silk Road went westward from Xi'an. And that is where it's going to end. This is the mindset that we supposed to be the Pacific nation. We have the right to be in the, nearby the, uh, um, the Philippines and the South China Sea because this is our mindset, this is ours. And uh, when you look at it, the, our going westward strategy is first started with the two railroads. Northern Railroad and the Southern; those are Pacific Railroad, Intercontinental. These are the civilizations that uh, develop. So I grew up in Northern Minnesota when I went to high school. Is the railroad town. It still is. It's a very hundred meters from my house. Is the Northern Railroad. Now they are moving oil pretty much from to the south. But those days when I was growing up, is uh, stocks going through the Chicago, Minneapolis, all the way to the Seattle. So this is our manifest destiny, and this is the, our commercial civilization we develop through this network. It's pretty much similar to, that, to what China is doing, the high-speed railroads going westward. And this, our belief is, as Thomas Jefferson said, this is, the, is uh, creating an empire of liberty compared to the celestial empire that China wants to, to create itself. So going westward and using the trade and commerce as the link, bringing people together. This is a very powerful two words that the commerce clause in our constitution. That bind the 13 colonies together or 13 states together and the 50 states later and the world together through WTO. It is extension of our commerce clause. So therefore bringing bring people together, not through the language or the religion or the, or the ethnicity, but through trade we can bring the people together. So therefore, this idea is very powerful to bring the United States together so commerce clause is also applied to not only our states, but to the Native American and also to the rest of the world. So when we said uh, America's destiny, I thought America's destiny is going to end up with the World Trade Organization, but it is failing, cannot agree on it. So TPP is uh, another alternative to get there. So let's start with the peace-by-peace peace strategy to get to the World Trade Organization, rule-based trade-in economic system to the world. So this one, I tried to argue it in one of my previous work, which I said uh, we are trying to get, America trying to get the uh, empire of democracy of Thomas Jefferson to the Hamiltonian means. Hamilton always wanted to have three things, trade with other countries to be in a manufacturing nation, we wanted to have a strong navy to support and protect our trades, and we want to have a strong centralized government in washington dC Not what Thomas Jefferson was talking about the democracy at the Hamlet level. So this is forces at always conflict Jefferson and Hamilton. Now we can say this is the forces of Hamiltonian ideas of economic forces and trade between China and America is bringing together, but political forces are dividing us because of our ideological basis of our governance and so forth. So therefore, my argument is trying to say, is, uh, will the Jeffersonian empire of liberty through Hamiltonian means in China is going to yield to the what we believe the democratic liberty going to have all the people, not only China, also elsewhere in the world. So through that uh, commerce course underpinning, What we did was, when we get rid of the British, all the Western European countries, and where did we turn? We turned to China. Our first ship left uh, harbor, uh, uh, New York harbor, on George Washington's, our first president's, birthday. It is a significant departure. We are telling the British, we got kicked you out, and now we are turning to the Middle Kingdom to trade with. Matter of fact, if you look at the American founding fathers, they were inspired by China at that time. If you look at the uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine and uh, others who are writing about uh, Chinese culture and also the uh, Chinese uh, Confucian philosophy, so by looking at this one, China wants to, America wants to, to the new nation wants to turn to. China because China is having the same kind of strategy bringing the people together in during the Tang dynasty same as uh, that is their manifest destiny going westward and America went that way now we wanted to connect with China not through the through the continent but through the going around the ships uh, uh, through sending our first ship this was a pull of Jensen from the uh, co, uh, the mountain regions of Appalachia, and on the way back, this ship went to Canton, which is modern-day capital of uh, Guangdong Province, Guangzhou. And on return, they had a pool of tea, from mostly from Fujian Province, and then uh, porcelain and silk back to this country. And then the coastal region of Americas, this uh, 13 former states, develop and develop a kind of tea culture. It's a very prosperous and uh, elitist. Groups develop on the coastal region all the way from Boston to Charleston, South Carolina. So what you see is this is the trade link those two nations and develop each other's economy during that time and we send this one as not only symbolic but is this is the commerce clause in action and Now there are three things happening in China now we have uh, now Silk Road is taking place, and we have trade and investment bind us together, and we owe $3, $3 trillion, and many American students in American university more to 300,000, and more exchanges going in back and forth. We are directly connected to each other than ever before. So during the intervening years, we turned to inward. Because the opium war happened one and two in the middle of nineteenth century. China focused on rebellious, Taipei and rebellious, and they became inward. America at the same time we had the civil war and we turn inward. So then uh, World War Two uh, one and two happened, and the Cold War pursued afterward. And what we have is this inward-looking countries, and we didn't have that uh, reconnections. That happened when the China became a member of the WTO, okay, formally. But at that time, after the death of uh, 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 Mao Zedong, we had a still commercial intercourse between the two countries. That it uh, uh, accelerated ever since. So there is this hiatus until the Opium War that two countries are close to linked, to trade. So now is the re-emergence of that. It is again the regionalization of the ancient cultures back again, looking for the future. So now, what is the Silk Road and TPP going to do? Accelerated? are we going to have conflict, war? Uh, Many people have a different way of looking at the scenarios. This is what I think. We believe in the through the Commerce Clause, or the Founding Fathers' idea how bring the we bring the nations together and have an Empire of Liberty. We essentially said, trade with all, entangle with none. This is our philosophy. And matter of fact, China is essentially doing this. China trade with anybody, and uh, uh, no political persuasion. Uh, they go to anywhere they can make uh, money or whether this is uh, their own self-interest or the interest of the other countries. So, what we have is now we are negotiating a negotiated 12-country uh, TPP agreement. And at the same time, China has their own pre-trade agreements with the Asian countries. They are overlapping. So, this overlap is we use, both countries use the trade as a mechanism to bring countries together. This is the Hamiltonian approach. So here, what you see is the TPP countries have some trade agreement with the Chinese. Like Australia, South Korea, Singapore, our allies. And now, China is trying to have a trilateral negotiations with the China, Japan, and South Korea, go one step ahead of the U.S. And they are building this uh, Shanghai pre-trade zone. They want to replicate elsewhere from Dalian to the Pujo to the uh, other provinces in the coastal region. So essentially, they are also doing the domestic reform from the legal structure and also the economic and try to do the banking and other sectors in order to, to accommodate. When you invite, just yes, we are coming in. Matter of fact, America hinted at, our Treasury, tre- uh, uh, Treasury Secretary was in Beijing a few months ago uh, at the time that uh, British were saying bye bye to America and joining the Asian Investment uh, Development Bank. And uh, all the other countries left America, the allies of the Europe. They said, don't go there. They didn't listen. So they are with the Chinese in the in the uh, AIIB. So what we are seeing is this uh, overlapping interest, is how this is going to unfold, how going to, to change. And if you look at it, uh, China is exclusively inclusive. We are trying to exclude China, but they are inclusive through other means. So we are trying to have, uh, saying we are not with my friends, but my friend is your friend. So therefore, what we are seeing is this is overlapping interest that China is strategically doing because China has their own manifest destiny. I thought it's when they went to the westward in the through the Silk Road, America pretty much copied that the Silk Road strategy going ourselves. We're going to westward. In historically speaking, I actually wrote an article about this one in the Harvard International Review. It said, the China's manifest destiny in America. So, thinking about uh, go beyond America's 200 east hist- history, let's go back to 2000 years of history to understand China, if you wanted to understand China. We need to go beyond 200 years of our history to see it. So, essentially, what we have in is a China said, let's have it inclusive, all the countries together. They are our friends and your friends. So how we are going to to have with it, not exclusively inclusive, but uh, by exclusion. But exclusion is not going, going to work, in my opinion. If you look at the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, all of our allies and friends, including India, are the founding partners of the AIB. And more interesting is, later on, U.S. administration said, we'll support that. Oh, sure. Now we are following the Chinese lead, not the other way around. So we are saying, yes, Asian Development Bank, largely influenced by the Japanese, yeah, we will work with the AAIB. World Bank, IMF, they said, yeah, 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 sure. No problem. So now, essentially, we are exclusively inclusive China rather than exclusion. So we are part of the same part. I don't know why I don't want to admit, yes, we are just following Chinese now. Because the, after the 2008 Olympic, when the Chinese won the gold medal than the, any other countries, the, the balance of power, the image in the Chinese mindset changed on that point onward. So ever since they are leading even to the PPP, PPP uh, uh, power parity, the, uh, disclosed by the IMF, the Chinese uh, have a per capita in PPP. Uh, so therefore, essentially, they are leading in many ways, and we need to, to recognize it. And if you look at the Chinese investment in Europe, is there are many in uh, Great Britain, and uh, now Great Britain is more allies with the Chinese than uh, more or less than Americans. And uh, if you look at other partners uh, like, uh, France, Italy, and Germany—they have more investment going to from from, uh, Chinese. And if you look at it, the Boston, uh, your train system here, uh, and it's going to be a 529 million dollar agreement they signed last year to have uh, more uh, uh, trains here. And now they have other. The sign agreement with the Los Angeles to L.A. high-speed train going back and forth. Essentially, there are investment over here in Virginia where I live and uh, we export chicken feet. We don't make, I think, $22 million for the last year or so. So in Minnesota, my home state, we also export uh, many things to the Chinese. I mean, there are many investment trade and going on, they are inextricably connected to the each other. So therefore, what we are seeing is the Chinese influence all over. So we recognize that. So Navy said, let's have a rule of conduct and how this the trade investment is going to work. So now we are negotiating BIT, Bilateral Investment Treaty, between the two countries. As we speak, we are saying, you are exclusive, and now we are negotiating this is a bilateral thing. Okay. So we set the rules and it is a very difficult negotiation by the way because a lot of uh, technical issues between the two countries and because of the economic structure of those countries. If you were to look at the investment going back and forth and the Chinese investment last uh, two decades or greater than the other investment coming from the U.S. to China. It is going to increase that way and more and more. now this is a BIT negotiation is how that is going to TPP. I really do not know. I don't have inside information about it. But I have the feeling that they have to, to align with the TPP agreements, clauses and the bilateral, because they cannot have a conflict. So if you wanted to invite China in, so we have all aligned with this one. So that is going to be a difficult negotiation. We, as you know, this is 6,000 pages in the TPP itself. I think when you go into the Chinese-U.S. Uh, one, it's going to be equally more complicated. So at the same time, if you were to look at it, uh, U.S. has only 46 con- uh, uh, BITs with the 46 countries. Now China has how many? 126, according to the UNCTAD International Conference on trade and investment uh, uh, in Geneva. So according to their statistic, then they have a more bilateral trade agreements with these uh, other countries by the Chinese than America, even though America's founding principle is uh, commerce with everybody. Commerce clause extension is that one. Trade with everybody. But China is pretty much doing the America's vision. America has the vision, but uh, our mission kind of dear toward it because of the Middle East and the other Uh, lobbying or the military uh, engagement and where the money leaves to the lobbying process, okay? But essentially China is doing America's vision and they are doing their mission and the vision coincide. But our vision is what? The, The mission is going somewhere else. So we send the military ship first, then send the other ships followed. But China send the cargo containers first, then if we want to, they send the ships later on if needed, just like they did it in Yemen. So therefore, what are we trying to do, the US? We are going to, to extend the hand, just like then our left, uh, our allies left us already from the Chinese side to the uh, infrastructure development bank. So we need to to extend it that partnership. We said that we implied we did. We are going to do that. We have to. There is no other choice because we are already following anyway. So therefore, what are the prospects for the TPP and the Silk Road? China very cleverly said, "Talking to the American, we are going to have a your dream, but it is the Chinese dream, with a Chinese characteristic. Whatever the mean that implied to the Chinese or the overseas audience, it is going to realize with it with the One Belt One Road strategy." And President Obama replied to. Secretary Kerry, we are going to have a Pacific Dream with the Pacific. And now, President Xi said, "Well, it's not really a Pacific Dream, but we wanted to get the Central Asia into this too. Then let's talk about Asia-Pacific Dream." So he essentially replied to American, "No, this is not a Pacific Dream. It's not an American Dream. This is not a Chinese Dream. This is an Asia-Pacific Dream. Let's inclusive everybody. Let's get into everybody to the tent, the Chinese tent." So this is what we, they are trying to, this is a part of the ideological trust of the pound in vision, part of the history and everything in one. So ultimately, this is the question that we, you and I ask, or everybody going to ask, whether it is the political motivation and the ideology system are differs. We are going to ask, how can we order our, this prosperous society, happiness? How can we have order and stability? At the same time, democracy and liberty. So this is the question that evolved from Confucius culture to the Nationalistic Republic, KMT came, came into power at that time, and then the Cultural Revolution, and the Deng Xiaoping's open economic policies, and now the Chinese dream. This is the evolution Reflects what I talk about at the very beginning, two dynasties coming in together, is the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So this evolutionary process is what I call the Chinese experiment. It's just like the American experience. We don't experiment, we experience. Then we found the way. China experimented its work, then implemented. And we do it in a little bit differently because our experience than the experiment. So our experience was we started the country. It's a republic. We are not a democracy at the very beginning. The word is not in our founding documents. We are like a China. Republic, People's Republic of China is a republic. Ours a republic too. But our republic doesn't, doesn't sometimes work in a, our, when they elected from the, our home district, from the congressman, once they go to the US Congress, they are member of the US Congress, not the, from home districts. So there is that discrepancy, This paralysis going through in our system. Because our republican system, just like the Chinese, those Chinese tend to say to we have a consultative democracy. Inside, we are bringing this process upward to the system, to the uh, to the top level of the decision making process. So they're like intra party policy uh, uh, democracy in action in the Chinese mindset. So they have their view of uh, democracy in a different way. So the question is, this Hamiltonian means of economic drivers can it bring to the what we call the empire of liberty. Remember that we didn't have a democracy. We put that democratic ideas, equal vote, equality among women and the minorities at that time, largely African-American. They didn't have the same rights, democratic rights. Those two items we put aside from our negotiating table at the founding of the country. African-American issue was resolved during Abraham Lincoln time. Women's issues—they—they they were properties. They didn't have a right to vote. That was resolved 100 years later. <laughs> <laughs> 100 years later. Oh, 100, 100, right. Yeah. So what essentially is—we are not a democracy. Democracy, even after the uh, civil rights amendments, uh, Martin Luther King, still is. We are having uh, that uh, equality issues and the democratic rights. If you look at the Ferguson, Missouri and the, uh, the alleged uh, uh, violation of the rights of the African-American in our justice system. So where is that democracy? Is it really we have a democracy or is it a republic? Republic now governed by some corporate interest. So this is the question. Is it really democracy at work? So, but this uh, Hamilton, uh, Jeffersonian ideas came eventually. We have an African-American president. That's the Japanese uh, uh, pinnacle of that American uh, uh, original vision. And, uh, but throughout the process, we went through the remarkable change from the civil war to the uh, rights of the minorities, and not to talk about what happened to the Native American, you know, uh, trail of tears and, uh, um, and reactions time onward. Even now in Minnesota, we have that uh, issue between the, the uh, tribal Uh, communities and the other communities in the white communities. So what happened is we have this Hamiltonian forces at work in order to bring the Jeffersonian world. So if you look out to the Washington DC, you see a huge statue of Thomas Jefferson. We worship him, but we admire, we want to attain him. But uh, we have a tiny little statue in the front of the Treasury department of the Alexander Hamilton. So why we are, really we are a Hamiltonian. As long as you are carrying a purse and the wallet and American Express or Visa card, you are a Hamiltonian. But you always wanted to talk, when you go to the street, we are a Jeffersonian. Everybody in the US Congress is Jeffersonian. But when they go to the, get the money, they become a Hamiltonian. Go to the Wall Street where Hamilton has a bigger statue. So therefore, what you're seeing is this American progress is that we got the American experience to Hamilton meets to Jeffersonian ends. it took long time. The question that we need to ask is, can we get that kind of the liberty or order in our society through that Hamiltonian meet Jeffersonian way? Can we export or expect from the Chinese? So China is gradually, because it's a long history and tradition and cultures and mindsets, They. Uh, it's very hard to change because they are ingrained in it just like the Americans are. And uh, if you look at the, our political uh, mindset right now, you know, getting rid of 11 million immigrants, uh, you know, this is not America's founding vision kind of thing. And, but we put those things aside in order to get elected and so forth. So there are a contradiction with the American vision and the American action. So there is, uh, that kind of mindset is, sti- is still prevailing in our society. So then the question is, what is the end game through the Silk Road and through TPP? Where are we going to get there? Who is going to lead the world? Who write the rules of the road? So that is the question that is going to play out. Then President Obama needs to think through, are we going to take the Hamiltonian approach to get the Jeffersonian ends in China? So that is the ultimate question. All Chinese ask, we get the Jeffersonian end by Hamiltonian means, but with the cha- Chinese characteristic. We get there. Don't tell us how to do, because we have been doing that for 5,000 years. You're just doing it a little over 200 years. So give us a time, because you took 100 years for women to get the equal right, another almost 200 years to give the equal rights to the African-American. So give us uh, at least 50 years. By 2049 comes the centennial, we might be there. So that is the China's rejuvenation of the new country, new country that presidency envisioned, in my view, the way we're looking at the back into the future. And thank you.:
1: Thank you very much, uh, Patrick. So f- uh, f- fantastic talk, very wide-ranging in terms of understanding the uh, current situation in light of the past. And as you know, that's the kind of approach that I very much like. So uh, I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed it very, very much indeed. I just want to start us off with a question, and then I'll turn to the, turn to the audience. But this is very much a question about the present in, in light of the past. When, when you look at what President Xi is trying to achieve, uh, in trade terms, in dealing with the, with the neighboring countries. How do you think that is going to proceed, given that there's also so much conflict in other affairs between China and many of its neighbors? So for instance, with the Southeast Asian countries, um, there is a, an enormous potential for economic integration. Part of the idea of the one belt, one road uh, concept is to connect China more closely to Southeast Asia. But at the same time, as you pointed out in one of your slides, there is also an intensification of conflict in terms of territory, in in, in terms of status, possibly also in terms of politics and political models for the future. Do you think that the Chinese leadership today, given this enormous backdrop that is there in terms of history, that they will be able to resolve these issues, that they will be able to put the trade interests uh, the commercial interests before the security interests and the more narrow uh, uh, r- sets of, of relationships between China and, and Southeast Asia. Uh,
2: so far I think uh, it's, it, that the strategy is working. Uh, for example my own country this is the uh, crown jewel of the maritime strategy in Sri Lanka and uh, during the last government uh, it's a pretty much pro-Chinese government and we built uh, Harbour, uh, and then uh, they are now rebuilding the Kalambu Harbour, mm. and the railroads uh, and the highways uh, and the coal mining, uh, uh, refining uh, factories are all there. It is uh, pretty much now some Sri Lankans said, we are a Sri Lankan island, it's another little island in South China, Sea next to India, so it is belong to China, so that is the kind of mindset. Why that one, that's the pro-Western, pro-democratic government turned to Chinese? Because of the trade interest. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, you are more interested in your tum- tummy than let's talk about the heart later on. Mm-hmm. OK, so this is the strategy. This is the Hamiltonian strategy. Before you talk about democracy, let them have uh, their hunger is issue, their housing, mm-hmm. have a decent job, school education for their children and good uh, road to go through high school system or plus a better environment mm. so so question is this is everything is driven by the economics when i was in china last uh, uh, week uh, last month uh, i asked one of my colleagues in the government you know about because it's the height of the south china sea issue so in private they said patrick yes America is a very powerful country. Then he forced, he said, militarily, Mm. at the expense of the economics. Mm. Ours is, he said, ours is a comprehensive power, Patrick. You need to understand that. Ours is a comprehensive power. I said, tell me a little bit. I knew what he was trying to tell me. All our interests Mm. leaves from one place. One place is economics. If you are economic, it's uh, their foreign policy. They want to have a strong economy at the expense of the environment or anything else. Mm. So they are going out the corruption issue to the, all the environment, two other major issues, for the economy. You need to, to don't rock the boat. Sure, it is coming down from the two-digit numbers to now the revised one is uh, 6.5% growth rate. But is still the growth rate faster than the uh, population increase but it is a lot much larger than the America's growth rate so America is a foreign policy is our military policy We don't care about the economic policy we are talking about the illegal immigrants if you listen to the uh, recent debate uh, Democrat uh, Republican debate and let's talk about uh, what is our foreign policy should be they said Donald uh, uh, Trump was saying we are going to bomb uh, when he got elected. If he get elected in the Middle East, so at the what cost we need to buy money from the Chinese and give the military industry and bomb it and they destroy it. So the economy is the most important thing in the comprehensive power. In the America is a kind of uh, we mismatch our uh, original vision. What America meant to be. And the economy is that the uh, Hamiltonian base needs to be stronger. Then we can talk about uh, Jeffersonian ends. But without that economic base, we cannot have uh, a strong foreign policy. But to me, my Chinese colleague and friend is right about when he thinks about when the China has a comprehensive power. They are using if you look at it, uh, their commerce Ministry of Commerce is much larger than their foreign ministry. Our says our Ministry of Commerce is bigger because it's the lump sum of a lot of agencies together, but in totality, it's larger than the, uh, our State Department. Or even if you look at it the other way, the State Department budget is the same as the U.S. military, the band. So our priorities are very different than their comprehensive power. So somewhere, somebody needs to tell the Defense Department, we need to have a smaller Defense Department and bigger Commerce Department. But at the same time, all the candidate I'm listening, they want to get rid of the Commerce Department. So we wanted to have a bigger Defense Department. So whereas the, how are you going to have a bigger Defense Department if you don't have a Commerce Department or the economic growth? So that is what my China w- friend was saying. Yes, you are very powerful militarily. We are very powerful, comprehensively. Just wait to, you know, we have to wait and see how this thing going to evolve. But at this point, their mindsets are a little bit different where we want to go through our foreign policy uh, agenda. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, sir. Uh,
3: Patrick, I wanted to thank you very much for the opportunity to think about this in, in some ways I don't typically think about it, and, and wonder whether this isn't A tremendously interesting way of thinking about clash of civilizations because for some time we have mixed and integrated Asian culture and Asian discoveries in the United States which is part of why it was why it's become as great as it is and now the um, a lot of the ideas are going back when I talk to my Chinese students much of the history that you talk about here is not familiar to them and when they look to me, for answers, I suggest to them that it's somewhat ironic that they're looking west to a country that was built, whether we're talking about transcendental philosophy, which has which has Asian Eastern roots, or we're talking about law, uh, which in part was the reason why the communist revolution happened. We, you can't use Western law to go- govern the Eastern side of the world. It seems to be a lot of of what we're talking about is the interrelationship between narrative, civilization, and philosophy and the way in which that undergirds our law, our, our travel, our um, health care, all the things that we do as societies. Um, I guess it's not so much a question I had, but the fact that your discussion of it and the way, way in which you did opened up a variety of things I've been thinking about for some time.
2: But you know, I mean, essentially, you know, Ch- Ch- China doesn't have a pretty much a so-called ideology. You know, I was the, uh, 15, 15 days ago, 12 days ago, I was in Yan'an, the uh, the Communist Party headquarters. Mao Zedong was there, and uh, I threw that one. That's, there are a lot of people there. Uh, I mean, coming in for the patriotic education. Uh, it's a completely full. That place. And uh, I have to go early in the morning to see that, uh, if you want to take pictures without people. So I went early in the morning uh, uh, when the Netherlands king was there the the same day. Uh, So the point is, uh, China is doing the best method, scientific method. Whatever it is, American or somebody else, doesn't matter. If it is work, it's just like Deng Xiaoping said. It doesn't matter the white cat or the black cat, as long as that cat caught the mouse in the good cat. So they have that same kind of philosophy. So uh, when they said, yes, the Americas, this system work, sure, let's try this work. You know, if you look at the, the, to the Mao's, uh, to the last hundred years, plus years uh, when the dynasties collapse and the Deng uh, son, and son came into power, you know we experimented. We you know in mean, there are, we have a Christian and the medical societies and the education system until 1949 uh, was a mix of everything. You know we tried and experimented. That is still there. You know if you go there, you know they said uh, there is no religious freedom. You know I see a lot of. Christian churches. Uh, I was in Wenzhou, I took the train, and I took about six different pictures in the, uh, during that four-hour trip. And if you go to main, main, main cities, there are Christian churches. Uh, Christi- I, mean, I mean, it's not China is a monolithic uh, one thing. If you look at the Han dynasty, there are 56 uh, uh, minorities. As long as they have a little bit Han, they are all Han. And they told me, I said, uh, they asked me, where are you from? Uh, he said, uh, I said, he was j- kidding with me. And I said, uh, I am from Urumushi, Xinjiang. Yeah. He said, really? <laughs> so you don't speak Mandarin? Mm, uh, I, speak, I speak Turkish, I said. Oh, really? Uh, what are you doing here? So he thought, actually, for 10 minutes, they thought, I am from Xinjiang. And they'd never been there and uh, don't have a clue about it. And I said, you want to see my wife with the burqa on it? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, my other friends, other Chinese friends, are laughing because they know me. And this is the new friend uh, in, uh, in Xi'an. So this is the thing. Then I said, you mean you are Han? Mm. Oh, yeah, I'm Han. Can you see? Yeah. Uh, they said, oh, yes. Then he handshake, and then everybody was laughing, and they was t- telling him, no, 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 Patrick is kidding. You know, I mean, he's been to all the provinces and all the cities in China, and uh, uh, yes, he, he he's not from here. He's American, but born in Sri Lanka, but he knows about China a little bit. So anyway, so what uh, the point is, China is not monolithic. That what we are talking about, you know. China, I think, if you go to the Lhasa and Tibet and other part of the country, they have that integration. I went to Catholic churches. You know, I am a Catholic, so I went to the two churches in Beijing and Catholic churches. You know, they are active. And I was in uh, um, um, Wenzhou. Uh, I went to the actively working church, the German built. So there are certain elements are there. So the question is, uh, China is a big country very big population. Ours is 400 million, and there's uh, 4 billion. So it is very hard to, to govern through the Western mechanism. They have to, to, to look at it uh, their own ways, organic process. One of the Chinese scholar from uh, uh, Nanjing University, where I taught once, uh, said to me, Patrick, we have a organic democracy. All right, uh, what is that? So he was arguing with me. I was giving a Confucian lecture. So uh, they thought I'm a Confucian. I said, yes, I am a Confucian. I'm from uh, uh, Chufu, Shandong. He said, really? Uh, you know, We are just kidding again. And he thought uh, that uh, Confucian culture is uh, more, it's not a religious itself, but everybody can learn about that one virtuous and things. So essentially what we are President Xi is trying to do the promote that soft power through uh, Confucian Institute around the world and virtuous culture, and which is good. We can, you can have that hierarchical system that goes along with the current system, and head is there and is like emperor from the heaven, and the rest of them bow to him. You know, this when the wind moves, all the grass bend that direction, just like Confucius says. So that society is very big, and they work with the organic democratic system, whatever that means. So it is very hard for us to tell them how to do things, when, especially when we are not doing our own American vision is not in action right now, uh, at the original vision, what our founding fathers envisioned for the country. It took long years. Uh, ours is, uh, in a way, I told my Chinese friend, you know, America is also organic democracy, because we didn't have a democracy at the very beginning. Women have r- no right to vote. They were properties. And African-American didn't have any civil rights. So we are organic democracy, too. Uh, he uh-huh. said, yeah, but ours is faster than yours. <laughs> I, um,
3: I hear what you're saying, and I, I agree. When I teach the Chinese students through CAPA about psychoanalysis, I don't use um, the 19th century uh, Viennese examples, I try to take examples that they have, both from their cultural revolution or from the economic changes that have happened uh, since Deng Xiaoping came in and get people to think about what the structure of the Chinese family means for the development of the children and the psyche and the relate and the relationships. so I have a hunch that that as long as we share. Uh, our culture, their culture, um, I can't imagine us teaching them Chinese using their examples of their history is going to either be linear or going to result in anybody dictating too much of anything to anybody else. And I'm not suggesting that uh, just this particular small experience I had teaching psychoanalysis with Chinese students, and Kappa, by the way, is now recognized by the Chinese Psychological Association, which is their official organization, but I'm suggesting that whatever metaphor we use, whether it's one of law, or whether it's trade, or whether it's philosophy, or whether it's psychology, um, we share needs as, as people, and there's always sort of um, uh, a gamey relationship between narrative and what people need. Uh, I'm going to be quiet and give this to somebody else. Thank you. I'm very confused.
4: I will raise two very simple points. Uh, uh, Number one is that uh, the TPP may not pass the United States Congress. Uh, just in the last three days, we've had two outstanding Harvard produce, uh, products of Harvard arguing in the, in the Globe for and against it. I'm thinking of Jeff Sachs on Tuesday, 4. And uh, I guess in today's Globe, uh, Professor Frankel of the Kennedy School saying we ought to approve, the Congress ought to approve it, uh, so there's a, and, 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 uh, one more point about that, of course, is that the, uh, most likely next president, Hillary, very quickly came out against it, apparently before she had read the text, if I understand correctly. Um, the other point is that, uh, I've, I've been, Listening to the President uh, say that the perp- one of the main purposes of the TPP is exclusionary toward China in the sense that uh, we ought to vote for it, he says, because it will mean uh, U.S. Proce- American procedures as, and, and, and ways, as, as um, the World Trade Organization and, and other international structures we have created. Uh, will uh, either the United States is going to set the pattern for Pacific trade, or China will? That's what Barack Obama keeps telling us. Uh, I'd appreciate your attempts to clear up my confusion on those two key simple points.
2: Um, yes, I mean, I I am also concerned about that one. I. Uh, just before I came here, I looked at it. How many U.S. senators didn't vote for the pass-track authority to whether this go to the go up or down? The, no, any amendment to the uh, TPP? Uh, 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 it's a close one. It's a you know arm-twisting kind of thing. Okay, 37 senators, uh, Democrats, and uh, plus other independent one it's, uh, like including like the Senator Sanders from uh, uh, Vermont, and they didn't vote for it. Okay, then uh, you are right. Secretary clearly Hillary Clinton, who actually appointed me to the UNESCO uh, uh, when she was the Secretary of State, she is supporting this whole thing. During her tenure, she is the one who initiated this TPP, the Asia Poverty Strategy. Now she is against before she for it. Just like uh, John Kerry said some time back. OK, so uh, th- this is politics of it. Let's uh, talk about uh, the seriousness of about this argument with the confusion coming in. Surely are the argument was uh, this uh, TPP was negotiated in secret. This uh, 6,000 uh, 6, pages was document pages, okay, 30 some uh, the chapters. I can understand the negotiation in secrecy. I kind of did it when I was at the State Department. Uh, we have to do it in a way in order to get something. But the question is, the, who are the people who represented the U.S. in a negotiating table? Whose interest they are advocating? If you look at it, the chief negotiator to the other negotiators, where are their background? Where are they coming from? They are all representing the Wall Street. That is the argument. This is not the trade for the interest of the national nations, but the corporate's interest. So that's the one kind of argument. If you look at it, I also consulted with a couple of my former colleagues, uh, both in the government uh, and now in the private sector. Uh, uh, They they said uh, government has less power now. The corporate, even in the TPP, give a great advantage uh, to the corporate power. So this is the question. Say that we pass the TPP. Senate says yes, somehow. You know, Just like uh, we did the WTO or the NAFTA. This is a very close vote when we pass a an, uh, North American Free trade uh, uh, agreement with the Canada and the Mexico. This is going to be a very close maneuvering between the Democrat and Republican. All the, I think, uh, Demo- Republicans are going to take the White House side and uh, other side is going to be a b- huge campaign going away. The question is this, just say that they passed, the U.S. passed, they, they become the law of the land, and other countries will follow. This is, the, if it is this, the interest of the corporate sector, and the government that has the enforcement of the labor rights, or the wa- human rights, or the environmental issues, has a less power to implement to the corporates uh, in the side of the law. So ours is fine, because our system is government is separate from the corporations. China, which he invited them to in, just like we did for the WTO, he said, you reform, restructure your economy, then we can get the membership of WTO. So we can do the same thing. We have the TPP. You are ready. Now you did all those things. We also have a BIT negotiation going on we will invite you in so when you invite in there's a chinese structure is fundamentally different from ours they have soes state owned enterprises they are not separate from the really a government of course there are some alibaba and tencent and a few other companies are there you know separate from the like american companies but they are also linked to the state so if the state and the corporations are the same they have the more power than the U.S. government. They cannot impose anything against the corporate sector. Our enforcement community has the less power, legal authority to do anything about it. Corporates are going to win. For the China, it doesn't matter because it's the same. So these are the kind of implications you need to look at it in a strategic point of view. In the domestically, you don't speak, uh, our elected officials don't speak for you. They speak for corporate interest. For example, when you have all the violence, the gun shooting, 70% of the American public want to have gun control. Obama wants to do that. That's uh, America has the finest level. Less people speak for that one. Why by, by the 70% of the American public cannot pass the, that law? Because the NRA is more powerful than the 70 percent of the American public. So this is the somebody else is speak for you. As just I said, uh, in Great Britain, they used to say, "You are a member of the parliament once you're elected by the people. You are a member of the parliament." Ours is they are member of the Congress. Soon after they' elected from the district, they don't represent them. They represent Washington, so then they have to. They are the one who need to talk to the because of the our campaign reform uh, uh, legislation and the Supreme Court uh, uh, the decision on that one. So our corporations are individuals, so they can exercise anything you want. So therefore, these are the larger issues that we need to, to think about it uh, that have a far-reaching implications for the country through this uh, TPP, because ours is the corporate interest that drives. In China, there is no different.
3: Thank you very much for an, an intriguing talk here. Um, this is a question from the, the the perspective of the other countries in this agreement. Um, there are two goliaths in this trade deal. Uh, what are the implications for countries like Canada? I know I know the parliament is still going to vote on this trade deal. And may, I think we may not have a choice in passing that, but what are what are the sort of the dynamics around that? It's quite opaque at this point. But uh, any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, you, you are right. When uh, when uh, Harper was the prime minister, and uh, earlier they are hung ho about this program. When the Justice Trudeau came in just uh, recently, and uh, they are not uh, all enthusiastic about this whole thing. So I do not know if, the, if we cannot pass this on the U.S. Congress. It's not followed through any other capital C in the other 11 capitals that we are negotiating with. So it is very critical for us to do it firsthand. If not, other capital, they said, it's not valid. It's defunct. It's just like a League of Nations thing, in a mini version, Okay, Uh, That's the one part. If this is the election year, uh, and then uh, I think March, uh, US uh, Congress supposed to vote up or down. OK, because of 90 days. So when that heat up by the time early part of next year and the, with the campaign, so that is also linked into the, this the TPP. And then uh, last uh, vocal group is going to be the, uh, the, the environmental group and the labor groups. Re- Democrats need that votes. So all the Republican can go with the White House president doesn't have to care for it because he's not re election But president do care about something for his legacy to build uh, their, just say their library and so forth. You are not going to ask uh, everybody $10, $1. They will ask the large corporation to give them. So they have to have uh, something to tap into it. So therefore, there is a personal interest and also the so-called the national interest for him to push this one. So, in the democratic side, uh, you know, I mean, uh, if the Secretary uh, Hillary Clinton wants to to go against this one, it is going to be the battleground for the White House and the campaign time. So, it is interesting to see what would this uh, landscape is going to turn around. Especially, the activists already are talking about uh, it—the nitty-gritty part of it: who actually control the White House and who is behind this one. What is this the each case is, especially this one arbitration uh, and the sovereignty issues uh, with the state versus the corporate uh, side. This is going to be the very t- uh, 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 lot of tension going to be. Other side is they can live with it. But there is no enforcement teeth to do anything. So that is the one I think that the uh, environmental groups and uh, and. Uh, uh, human rights and also the uh, labor group are going to advocate for that one to push it down, that one. So it is interesting to see how this is going to play out. It's also interesting to see that uh, because the Trudeau came into power in uh, northern neighbor, uh, so there is uh, that kind of uh, change in the landscape in uh, in uh, in Canada as well. So uh, have to see with, the but at the end game, I think, if we failed. China is winning. China will write the rules. Because our best allies, China has a trade agreement with South Korea, Australia, uh, uh, Singapore. These are our allies. And they are negotiating one with Japan. So that's pretty soon. Just like our European allies said bye bye to America, when this White House said don't join the, Asian Infrastructure Development Bank. They said, no, who cares for the US? And they went and joined. Now our Asian allies might say, well, America is the only power we have is uh, military power. Sure, they can have our nuclear submarine going through freedom of navigation, so what? They are not going to shoot our fishermen with the nuclear submarine, so let them go. We can have a fisherman and our economic development ourselves, sure, they can want to buy our fish anyway to feed them, so so be it. So they have a good argument to think about it. They have a comprehensive power, long-term power. They are thinking about not uh, next five years, next four years. They are looking about uh, another 20, 30, 40 years, until 2049. So they have a long-range game plan. So that is where I think we need to, to think beyond that, uh, the horizon of this campaign uh, to see what, how the things already change. Only thing is we need to, to get the head out from the sand like ostrich did and to say, yes, China is the leading. And they use that economic power, they, that levers to their own advantage. Sure, they have a problem with uh, Vietnam and the Philippines. At the same time, they are giving more money to that project and this project. OK? And then in the ne- Nepal, and uh, they are doing all the de- redevelopment after the tsunami. And with the India, they have all the corridors are developing. And $40 billion project for with the, our other allies, Pakistan. So when you look at it, the money talks. The money is there, The comprehensive power. Our foreign policy start, should be starting with not the Pentagon, But with the economic development, uh, the economic source of the every power, other powers resonate from that power. China understand that one from the Silk Road to onward. And that is where that uh, future relies.
1: We have one one
0: final question here. Yeah, madam. uh, My question is how do you see this experience differing uh, from the WTO experience when all all the developing nations were uh, I mean, they, they bought the idea of free trade and the benefits from trade and so on, and then when we started implementing the details of the WTO, things got really messy and uh, the, the developing countries realized that they were tricked into the myth of this is some, f- the, the free trade principle, basically that this is good for everybody. Uh, ultimately it's not good for everybody. It will never be good for everybody, even when when you have weaker partners. Now that you have strong partners, the chances that it will be good for everybody is, is almost nil, right? So what what why are the weaker countries in Asia and in other other partners with China are not realizing that instead of having one strong economic partner, you're having two strong economic partners. You know, I mean,
2: uh, uh, I was giving a lecture at the in Sri Lanka, at the Central Bank, they asked a similar kind of question, what the Sri Lankan foreign policy should be. Uh, now the we used to be Chinese, of influence, now we are leaning toward the West and uh, what kind of policy we should have. I think the good one to look at it is in the Singapore. Uh, Singapore, we have uh, Uh, military connections, and our ships goes there. At the same time, they are talking to the Chinese. It is pretty much Chinese, Uh, sure. Uh, So because uh, uh, Singapore has to survive, there is nothing they can grow or do anything, but the only thing is a transit port. So they have to stay good with everybody, okay? And if they didn't have Malaysia, Singapore doesn't exist. If you don't have a Guangdong province, there is no Hong Kong, and for example like that. So they are linked to these uh, major countries, but uh, in order to survive yourself, you have to work with uh, these two Goliaths, working with the both of both sides, benefit from both. If uh, when you look at uh, your national interest, where does nat- national interest intercept? Singapore is a democracy, but it's a Confucian democracy, uh, sort of. So <laughs> yeah. So the China. When I travel around China, China have uh, probably ten thousand Singapores around all the cities. Everywhere there's little Singapore, little Singapore, little Singapore, little Hong Kong, little Hong Kong. Okay, Deng Xiaoping was asked about that one. You know, you can govern this country. The you can long the, that time. They said, yes, you can make uh, China like Singapore. Yeah, because you are a little uh, city state. Mine is so big. No, make it that the small cities like ours, you know, they are connected, so they have a bigger Singapore. So trade with everybody. So that is working, that strategy is working. So who, which government talking about that they are communist? they are, are, uh, you don't trade with it. No, nobody talks about China has been that communist name only. If they can find another better name, I mean, I said it is a Confucian Republic of China. I mean, I mean, for example, you know, I mean, essentially that's better. And I actually I was giving a lecture on the Confucian inspiration for America's founding of America. And I gave that lecture at the Confucian Research Institute in Chufu last month. And they didn't know, these are the, the experts around the world at the Confucian Institute. I wrote about this uh, chapter two about uh, how uh, Confucian Uh, influence, have our founding of the country. And then uh, they didn't know. This is what I, afterward, I talked to the director. uh, And uh, I asked him privately, do you think if President Xi wanted to promote these Confucian ideas, virtues, and structure, and relationship, all these things around the world, will he change the Mao Zedong in the Tiananmen Square and put the Confucius? He said. It's a matter of time, Patrick. I said, what? You were with President Xi. I saw the picture in your room. And I said, yeah. Can I quote it publicly? Yeah. Because I like to see confusion in the Tiananmen Square, not the Mao Zedong, because his time is gone. But he unite the country, people have the respect in a certain elements, and the young generation uh, doesn't care much about it, either of them, and that, thinking about, you know, all the students I teach in the Wuhan, Nanjing, Tonji, Pudan, or Tsinghua and Peking, uh, they're pretty much like American kids, American graduate students. I mean, they think like that, talk like that, and uh, I couldn't see it different. And uh, so the point is, uh, this is a new reality. When the wind blows, the grass bends. So, sure, Vietnam had problems. India has uh, issues, border issues. every country in the neighbors they had issues. We didn't you know well we did uh, with uh, Mexico and we got to Texas and by force and all those things. We did many ti- long time ago. But uh, China is very cleverly bilaterally resolving these issues. When we have uh, issues, they said uh, we send in the military those they remove the oil rig from uh, nearby Vietnam. It is not really oil rig, but uh, uh, just say oil rig, OK? Um, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's no expense. It's exploration. Uh, yeah, it's a new exploration. So move forward. OK, they go two step forward, come one step backward. Now they said, don't come to this uh, uh, our islands in uh, Subi Reef, in uh, Spratly Island. Uh, then they said, uh, we send our, uh, fleet commander to Beijing. We just talk, oh yeah, we are going for the freedom of navigation. Oh, fine, bye, hi. So that's fine. So they go, push, go two step forward. When the America push back, go one step backward. So he's still there ahead. So when we play this game, so when we're talking about just bomb in Middle East by Donald Trump. And they are working, about that's great for us because we have uh, $3 trillion that becomes $6 trillion soon because th- we have to have a banker to fund them. Uh, uh, so, so we don't go to war with them anyway. So that's good for China. So this is the kind of world we are talking about. And everybody in the, uh, in the South Asia, uh, they are worried about uh, their children's education, nice house, nice car, or nice clothes. They're not talking about, uh, I want to have a Jeffersonian democracy tomorrow. Uh, they're not, I mean, they might, okay? Now China is not afraid about that either. We have uh, close to 300,000 Chinese students over here. All of my son and daughter's friends are Chinese, uh, both University of Virginia and the Purdue University, and uh, they all have WeChat. Uh, and uh, they are not afraid. And they have uh, 20, 11 million people travel abroad, Chinese, middle class. And I was going to Sri Lanka from Shanghai. I was the only non-Chinese in that plane except the pilot and the crew. I <laughs> and the half of the crew are Chinese. Because during that uh, holiday time in October, uh, first week of the October, I was, because I didn't want to be in China because everybody traveled, so I went home. To see uh, my family and friends, so I'm the only one going. So China is not afraid of letting these people go. They are a democratic bees. When they come back, they are not going to have a revolution over here, Jeffersonian revolution. When these 300,000 students go back, they have a Chinese leadership has a remarkable confidence now. They will come back. I have uh, many friends in Washington. Uh, in uh, uh, number of our universities around uh, Washington, D.C. area. They are going back. They have actually better life over there, except uh, air pollution is the issue. All of them, I talk about it. Uh, it, it was actually very bad. Uh, no, This time, I saw the first time uh, last two months uh, blue sky. Apex you know, blue, you know, you call it, Apex blue. So the first time I see the three days, uh, they told me that there's a good amen because I came to Beda. Uh, uh, anyway, otherwise, it's uh, issues. So that's the issue uh, that we need to deal about. Uh, already changed the balance of power. Change. It's a matter of admitting, taking that uh, ostrich, taking the head out on the sand. He said, "Yes, we used to have a desert. Now everywhere is a high rises, buildings."
1: You certainly helped us getting an overview of what the ostrich will see when he gets his head out of the sand uh, this afternoon, Patrick. It's been very enjoyable. It's something I think that all of us have learned learnt a great deal for, particularly your, your unique perspectives of really bringing free cultures to bear on this, which is something that is, is much needed, I think, particularly on, on the U.S. side in terms of developing its strategies and its, and its, its policies. So um, I've learned a lot from this, I'm sure the audience has as well. We will see you back here soon, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced about that. Before you get to do your next book, although you do them in rather quick succession, I hope. <laughs> so we will be able to come back um, to some of the discussion points that we had today. But for now, thank you very, very much for sharing your insights with us. It has been a great pleasure this afternoon. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you.